Coming today on Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung. She looks at me and she goes, Mommy, is that a good divorce or a bad divorce? And I stopped and I said, Grace, I don't know what's the difference between a good divorce and a bad divorce. She said, well, a good divorce is when a mommy and daddy are nice to each other like you and daddy. And a bad divorce is when the mommy and daddy scream and yell at each other. And I stopped. So the big questions are these. How can we navigate and negotiate every situation in our lives, in our career, in our businesses, in our relationships, and even with ourselves for our own self-worth? In other words, what if you could win every time and have no losers? Let's face it, we're not negotiating just to buy a car or for a pay raise. We are negotiating for living in every aspect of our lives. How can we do that powerfully, successfully, and victoriously? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Rebecca Song, and welcome to the time where you negotiate your best life. Welcome to another episode of Negotiate Your Best Life. I'm Rebecca Zung, and it is my pleasure and honor to welcome Sarah Armstrong. She is the author of The Mom's Guide to a Good Divorce, but she is also the Vice President and Global Marketing Operations Director at Google. She is the proud mom of Grace, who is a freshman in college. She is super accomplished. She is absolutely incredible. She was a partner at McKinsey. She uh, was a global marketing director at Coca-Cola. She's done all kinds of amazing things. We're going to talk about... uh, the amazing background that she's had. Uh, but really what she's here to talk about is how to have a good divorce and what that actually means. So it is so, so, so good to welcome you here, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Rebecca, great to be here with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So we started talking a little bit earlier before we got started. Your daughter, Grace, and my daughter, Emma, are just a couple months apart in age. And so tell me a little bit about you. Tell me a little bit about your background. Just give me a short snippet about your history and Happy to. So I'm uh, I'm from Michigan originally, so I grew up in the Midwest. I moved and went to Georgia, actually undergrad, and played volleyball on scholarship there back in the day when I could run and jump a long time ago, and uh, headed into the marketing world after that, and spent some time on the agency side, and then went to Atlanta and worked for Coca-Cola for about 20 years, and then shifted over to McKinsey and then joined Google. So from a career path standpoint, as you mentioned, I had had a really um, fulfilling career that I'm very proud of. But in parallel to that, I had Grace and we got divorced when she was seven. So she was quite young. But it was interesting because I was raised by parents that have been married for 53 years and are a true partnership in marriage. And I'm so proud of their marriage. And they were, they were really kind of, for me, the gold standard of what a marriage looked like. 
And so that's one of the interesting things uh, about this whole topic and the fact that I've written a book on, on divorce, because I like to say just for the record, I'm actually not an advocate for divorce. I think that in an ideal world, couples get married and they stay together for the long term. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so in these days, it's more common than ever. And as I, as I mentioned to you, no one gets married to get divorced. And no one gets divorced for positive reasons. But when children are involved, their parents uh, are the ones that made the decision to get divorced, but their lives are the ones that are most significantly impacted by that decision. So this whole journey of, of the book was not necessarily, obviously, something I was planning to do. I don't fashion myself a writer, but it is uh, something that I feel very passionate about, about helping women that are going through this really challenging time. Yeah. So uh, one of the stories that you tell early on in the book is about how your daughter Grace was standing in a CVS with you mm-hmm. and looking up at a People magazine. And tell, tell us that story. Yeah, yeah, it's actually, I mean, she really defined the concept of a good divorce. So we were, we were in, uh, standing, she was eight, actually, it was a year after our divorce. We're standing at CVS about to check out. She looks at this People magazine and it had a celebrity couple on the cover. And she looks at me and she goes, mommy, is that a good divorce or a bad divorce? And I stopped and I said, Grace, I don't know what's the difference between a good divorce and a bad divorce. She said, well, a good divorce is when a mommy and daddy are nice to each other like you and daddy. And a bad divorce is when the mommy and daddy scream and yell at each other. Then I stopped and I said, well, Grace, it's hard to tell what type of divorce it's from a magazine cover. But I, Rebecca, I walked out of that CVS that day with Grace and we walked to the car and I thought, you know what, whatever my ex-husband and I were doing in terms of our approach to our divorce, a year in, our daughter was referring to it as a good divorce. So I knew that we were doing, you know, something right. And right is a relative term, but I felt like we we're on the right path. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about three important points to keep in mind mm-hmm. for a good divorce. Um, do you want to talk about what those are? Yeah. You know, I think when you, first of all, when a couple gets married, a good divorce, first of all, means that you've put aside your personal feelings for one another and you focus on what's best for your children. I mean, that is, it's so fundamental because there's high emotion in a divorce and those emotions aren't necessarily positive, but you have this child and you have to figure out what's best for them. So that's the first piece. The other thing to remember is when we're going through these divorces, the stakes are high. You know, we owe it to our children to ensure that they're not collateral damage due to the divorce. And even though we are not married to each other, we've made a commitment to bring our children up in the healthiest environment possible, even if it's in a co-parenting two-household scenario. And so I I joke that we cover the plugs and we make them wear bike helmets and we feed them organic milk. We do all these things as parents to say that we want our kids to be healthy and happy. But then we can get into these Divorce situations in the toxicity that a divorce can actually bring to a child's life can have a long-term impact on them in terms of their views on relationships, on their view on marriage, and actually just their overall happiness in life. So I just think we have a responsibility as parents to to co-parent and take co-parenting seriously in a divorce situation and have that be the intent as you go in, because without that intent, you can get pulled into that toxic environment and pull your children into the toxic environment with you. And then that can be for for a lifetime. It doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. And then you have two other points. Did you hit all three of those already? 
in terms of that. Yeah. So I just want to make sure you hit, but you also say that they're, they're very hard to achieve. Why do you think that they're so hard to achieve? Okay. Sorry. So in terms of the, the challenge in achieving a good divorce is that people generally approach it with what's going to be best for them, meaning the parents, and they lose focus on what is really needed for their children. And so that is why if you step back and think about those divorces that you potentially observed, a lot of times it is about the battle between the two parents and the children are literally not even considered. And so I think that having people actually refocus when they're negotiating, quite honestly, their divorce and all that comes with that to keep their kids in focus front and center from the beginning. And most couples... The, the gravitational pull to have it be focused on each other and why they are so upset with each other leaves the children both to the side and not in focus. And, and that can end up being where the negativity that comes with it is what stays and you don't actually have the right focus in terms of what really matters. Yeah. So you also talk about around the time you were getting a divorce, I think it was maybe right after, I'm not sure the time frame. you were attending a business dinner in Mexico City. Yeah. Uh, and there were a bunch of Latin men, I think it was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they were so stunned that you were happy after your divorce. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, it was an interesting moment. So I do a lot of international travel for my, my career. And I was with a, a group of Latin men in Mexico City, as you said, and my good friend turned to me as a colleague of mine. He said, Sarah, you're so happy. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, Selvin, I'm really happy. He said, but you're divorced. And, and I, I laughed a little bit. I said, Selvin, getting a divorce is not a death sentence. My ex-husband and I decided to no longer be married to each other. And yes, I'm happy. I said, Grace is happy. My ex-husband's happy. We're all happy. And I mentioned to him that a number of my friends who had helped through their divorces had, and really throughout the process, they said, you should really write these things down and you should write a book. And so I had mentioned that to him and he said, you really should. So the next morning I was flying out of Mexico City and I opened my laptop and I started writing. And the first line I wrote was, this book was written by a girl who never ever thought she would get a divorce, who got a divorce and what she learned along the way. And uh, it's, and that is the, literally the opening page of my book now. And so it was a very reflective time to write all of those things down, all the guidance I'd given to my girlfriends. But I think the fact that there was a perception that you couldn't be happy just because your divorce was such a moment for me. It was one of those catalyst moments of saying, gosh, I, why is that such, why is that societal perception there? Why does society think that those two things that, so I just think there's not enough good conversation about the topic of how to have a good divorce and that my goal is really to shift societal perception, perception that a good divorce is an attainable outcome. Yeah. You know, I, I do have to say, though, I always say, though, that there, there is this kind of divorce paradox. And that is that during the worst, most horrible time in your life, you have to make the most critical decisions of your life. You're like, they say that the most stressful things that you could go through in your life are like death and divorce. And, 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 and yet during this horrible time in your life, you have to make these critical decisions about 
your children and your money and your business and 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 these these decisions are going to affect you for the rest of your life. Yes. And 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 you can barely even think and you can barely even move. I mean, so I think that so such a paradox in such in a way. It's a great way of putting it, Rebecca. It is a paradox. And I think that's why one of the, the points that I talk about in the book is the concept of a compartmentalization muscle. That you actually, if you if you haven't had to build one in life prior to this, it is so fundamental to figure out how to compartmentalize the what you're going through, which is this really challenging time in life, while also trying to think about the future and what's best for you, what's best for your children, what do you think you need, and and have these rational conversations when you're in this very emotional and potentially irrational place in your life. And so it is a very, paradox is a great way to put it, it is a very challenging time to balance those two different mindsets. And that's why even in the approach I, I took to writing this book, it was about thinking about the decisions you need to make and then the discussions you need to have either with yourself or with your ex-spouse to think about those things that you need to have some forethought about as you're going down this path about your children and the lives and their lives, both within your house and then in this kind of potentially two-parent household, sorry, co-parenting households where they're going to be in two houses and it's a lot of logistics of life, Rebecca. I mean, when you're raising a child in one house, it's it's one thing, and there's a lot of logistics then. When you split it across two homes, and all of the decisions that you make about your child's life in a given day, week, or month, and across the year, are significant. And so, I think your point about a paradox is dead on. Because if you don't think about those things, the challenge is you're setting yourself up for a very bumpy road ahead in terms of having to make decisions along the way once you're actually divorced. And then you're having to have those conversations afterwards. And that can even be trickier. So it is a really interesting time. Coming up, more on Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zong. Think about what you can control. What are the things that you can influence that are going to allow your children to be in a a positive situation? And the the challenges when you're dealing with individuals that aren't willing, then you have to kind of think about those moments and that's not something you can influence and you almost have to let it go and say, okay, that's not part of this. I I can't control that and I need to only focus on those things I can control because you will get very frustrated. When it comes to the safety of a child in a divorce case involving alcohol abuse, there is no compromise. Take back power, strength, and truth from the narcissist in your life with documented proof of sobriety. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they're not drinking when a child's safety is at risk. Soberling's real-time alerts make it easy to negotiate with any party. Judges rest assured that the child is safe. Attorneys get court admissible evidence of sobriety and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. I created this community to provide support for divorced moms like me, which is why I partnered with Silverlink to create the resource Tips for Negotiating with a Narcissist. To download the guide and get 
$50 off your Soberlink device, visit www.soberlink.com forward slash negotiate. Are you struggling with how to negotiate and win? Maybe you're dealing with a personality that's particularly challenging, like a narcissist or other high-conflict personality, and you're feeling powerless. Make sure to download my free Win My Negotiation Cheat Sheet at www.winmynegotiation.com. Take a listen to our archive, where you can listen to more episodes that show you the path to how to negotiate your best life. The covert narcissists are the ones that look so kind and so great, so sweet, and everybody thinks they're so wonderful. And so they save themselves for the their actual targets. And the things that they do are so under the radar that when you go to tell people about it, People are like, well, that doesn't seem so bad. And now we return to today's show. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy for you. I mean, you mentioned that your parents have been married more than 50 years. So I'm sure that you went through a lot of pain, a lot of sadness about the fact that maybe even guilt... Yes. I mean, can you talk about that? How yeah, you absolutely. how you went how you dealt with that? Yeah, no, I think that it is the hardest thing I've ever done, no question, in life. There was a lot of sadness and it's the end of an uh, an era and a picture that you had created in your life of where you thought you were going and the journey you thought you were on. And so it was a really challenging time. I went through lots of therapy and had amazing support from friends and family along the way. So I am very fortunate in that way, but it was a really challenging time. But I I think the the thing that was kind of a key factor for me is I'd watched really negative divorces growing up of some of my parents. Even though my parents were wonderfully happy, they had some friends that went through some really ugly divorces. And I thought, if this is the path that I'm needing to go down, I don't want it to be that way. I just, I fundamentally just couldn't envision that that's what I wanted for my life for Grace's life and even for my ex-husband stuff, I'm just like, I don't want it to be that way. So even in the sadness and in the kind of reflections of what I was moving away from, I wanted to figure out how to put it on a path that was actually going to be, and again, positive, maybe funny in that instance, but I wanted it to be a positive path coming out of divorce. And I wanted to figure out what that looked like, but I didn't have a roadmap because I didn't, I had never seen that before. Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting time to figure out what that could look like. Yeah. One of the things that I like about your book is that you have it in like very small chunks. It's really, really easy to read. It's everything is really, really tiny chunks. Yes. So talk about how you decided to, to organize it. That's a great, great point. And and something I was very conscious decision. So what happened was when I went to my divorce, I had a number of people that gave me books. Okay. And they were big, thick books. I literally opened them. And I closed them. I did not read them. They were too dense. And to your point earlier, there's so much coming at you when you're going through divorce mentally and emotionally. I couldn't even process it. I just, I closed them up. So when I decided to write this book, I did break it into three phases. So preparing for the change during the change and post the change. And then 
All of those decisions I mentioned are broken into bite-sized pieces. So each topic, there's 185 topics in the book, and there's just one topic per page. And the thought is that this isn't a book you read cover to cover, because depending on where you are in your divorce, you may only be ready for the preparing for the change section, and you might only want to read two or three topics and then put it away and reflect on what's in there and think about it. And even when I was outlining the book with our, the editor and working through the details of how to put it together, they were telling me that I was wasting paper <laughs> because I was only putting one topic per page. And they said, you got white spaces for thinking, for like reflecting or taking notes, or I, I don't want people to feel like they have to go on to that next topic if what they're trying to process is this one decision they need to make about their children's lives and how they're going to handle this. So it was very conscious and design, and I've gotten a ton of great feedback over the years about the design and the fact that it um, is helpful to have it set up that way because you can literally go in the table of contents and look for a topic that might be relevant to you at the time and then just, just dig into that topic. Yeah, yeah. So a, a lot of my listeners are dealing with somebody who is narcissistic on the other side. So I think having a good divorce is in a lot of ways, you have to have somebody on the other side who's willing to co-parent, who's willing to be there and show up and say, okay, I'm willing to also have a good divorce, right? So if you have somebody on the other side who just refuses to have a good divorce, who just refuses to co-parent, what would you say to that person? Uh, no, it's a great question. And I know not all scenarios allow for both people to be willing, uh, willing co-parents. What I would say is as as the individual, and in this instance, I'm talking to moms, then think about what you can control. What are the things that you can influence that are going to allow your children to be um, in a, a positive situation? And the, the challenges when you're dealing with individuals that aren't willing, then you have to kind of think about those moments and that's not something you can influence and you almost have to let it go and say, okay, that, that's not part of this. I, I can't control that and I need to only focus on those things I can control because you will get very frustrated by the situation. And then what I've seen, and this is what we're, I'm trying to avoid for others, is that you then allow that dynamic to become the negativity in your life every day and say, because that unwilling co-parent isn't there, that means X, Y, and Z. And I think we just have to say, okay, what can we control and, and how can we make a positive situation at this moment? And I have a an example or a story from, from our situation, we were at a parent-teacher conference when Grace is in sixth grade, and we'd been divorced five years at that point. And the, in, in, in those days, Grace joined us for the parent-teacher conference. So it was myself, my ex-husband, and Grace and her teacher, and we're sitting in her office, and we're an hour, we at an hour conference. At the end, the teacher looks at us, and she looks at me, she goes, are you two divorced? And I said, yes, yes, we've been divorced for five years since Grace is in first grade. She said, I had no idea. And I looked at her and I said, well, it didn't occur to me to tell you. <laughs> and like come in and say, oh, we're divorced, by the way. So she said, it was so amazing how few parents in divorce situations can come into this office for one hour with their child and talk about their child's education. And she said, it makes me very sad. And I said the same thing. And by the way, Grace is hearing this conversation. And I said, that makes me very sad too, because what's more important to parents 
than their child and how they're doing in school and their education. And besides being healthy, you know, how they're doing in school is a very important piece of the, the picture in a child's life. And so it was just a moment. And then again, a reflection of those are the moments that we, I know it's hard. And sometimes it's the last person you want to sit next to in a, in a conference room. But if your child's involved, I think we owe it to them to put that aside for that hour. It's one hour, once a year, and go in and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And it's really, really good for the kids, by the way, because kids are so much more likely to succeed if the parents are together. I mean, not I and I don't mean together as far as being married. I mean co-parenting. Co-parenting, absolutely. I mean, the more co-parenting that can happen. I just think the better off. Now, there are instances where there's a reason that another parent is not in the picture. And I completely appreciate those scenarios. And that may be the healthier scenario, right? Is that the parent isn't in the picture. And so in those instances, then just a little bit of a different path in terms of how you manage things. But anytime that we can have a co-parenting situation that shows both parents, like we would go to Grace's soccer game or whatever, and we'd both be on the sidelines, like, she deserves that. Or her birthday parties. My ex-husband would come over and she'd blow out her cake with both of us there singing happy birthday to her. Like, Grace deserves that. That she did not choose for us to decide we are going to live in separate homes at age seven. That was not her choice. And so I really think that's a really fundamental um, thing that we we deserve to give our children if it's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if if you can, I mean, if you can, if you if you've got a narcissist on the other side, it's sometimes it's impossible. But if you can. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're very fortunate. You're very fortunate. Yeah, I am fortunate, but I I feel like we we were conscious about it. You know, yeah. And trying to to really, really think about the impact it would have on Grace. I love the chapter in your book on preparing for a year of firsts because, especially because it's, it's really almost like a death. And for people who, who've also experienced maybe a death of a spouse, you're preparing for a year of firsts. It's, it's very similar. For the first time you're spending Christmas or, or, or Hanukkah in a different way or celebrating Easter in a different way or you're celebrating a holiday in a different way or your birthday in a different way. I, I just think that that is so, so great that you thought about that. Talk about that. Yeah, no, it's, it is such an important year. And I think the, the reason I talked about the year first is because those are going to be the moments where you look and say, do I want to do that thing again next year the same way? Whether it's how do you celebrate your child's birthday or whether how you think about the summer vacation or the holidays, which are super difficult during a divorce. And so I think allowing yourself that first year to go through it, and, and I agree with you, it is a grieving process post-divorce. And you are, I also, I, I use the term, you're in a divorce hangover. I mean, and you have to figure out how to get out of it. And so I value to be honest with yourself about what worked, what what you would do again and, and what you don't want to do again in that same way. And I personally went through my first round of holidays and we, we were splitting holidays and trading off. And my first holiday was at Grace. I decided, yeah, I'm not doing it this way again, which was I was with my family, my extended family, my nieces, my nephews, and Grace wasn't there. I thought, this isn't fun. Like this is, so this is horrible. <laughs> so I decided to change the way I approach holidays when I don't have her. So I go away. I, I do something for myself. And 
So that has allowed me to reflect on what worked in that first year and then design the next year and think about very consciously the next year in terms of what, how, how you want to handle it. But each of those first, you kind of have to stop and pause and say, did that work for us or not? And for your children and did how you celebrate their birthdays work and did how you went to their school play work. And then you reflect and say, yeah, that worked. And you keep it in, <laughs> you keep it in the next. And sometimes you say, you know what, that is just not going to work. And you have to figure out what you want to change about that, that scenario. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend that even said Sunday brunch was different. Sundays is like, I don't do brunch with him anymore. I yeah. mean, yeah, no, no, there's all those, there's a little things in the day to day. Just even sitting down to dinner, I mean, it was Grace and I used to be the story that there were those moments that I just said to Grace, we're going to form new family traditions. We're going to have, so we, when we did, we had sushi and Netflix night, which was our night. She got to pick whatever and I, we'd order sushi. And so picking, making new traditions, I think is important in that first year too. And figuring out those moments that are now yours as a new structured family that may not be what it was before. So there's a lot of those. The other thing we did is we did a lot of travel together um, as a family. And then we still traveled when it was just Grace and I. And so I decided I was going to, I love to travel and so I decided I want to show her all of the cities in the U.S. that were really important to me. So we'd go away and, and create these really special weekends that were, were our special new tradition of, of kind of exploring the city together. So I think there are those things in the day-to-day that you really have to figure out how you replace those moments that feel um, different. And then you create new ones. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, I thought that was such a thoughtful chapter to include in your book. Yeah. I love that. So uh, what would be the last piece of advice that you would want to offer to anybody who is dealing with a divorce? What would you say to people? Yeah. One of the things that I think people underestimate is minimizing the gaps that are in your child's environment physically because children notice everything. And as you're deciding how to go into this next phase of your life with your child, whether you're staying, like if you're staying in the home, whether they're growing up or you're moving, whatever the case, but as things are being pulled apart in their world, literally, which is their parents are no longer going to be living in the same home. How do you minimize those gaps so it doesn't feel so significant in terms of their physical environment? And the story I share is that uh, we had a family wall of black and white photos uh, that were interspersed in my husband, my ex-husband's and my family. And it was this long hallway. And I decided that I was going to need to give my ex-husband his family photos and the photos that were his. And so I took the time. And again, when you go back to the things of, of having a lot going on in divorce, I said, you know, what? I need to replace those photos. So I took the time to get new photos made and put them in the frames. And I sent Grace down to a play date and I took the photos off the wall and put the new ones up. And she came out about an hour later and I'm in the kitchen and she walks in and within a couple seconds, she goes, Hey mama. And then said, what's that Grace? She said, the wall has changed. And I stopped in my tracks and I thought, Oh my God. And I said, well, what's changed? She goes, there are a lot more pictures of me up there. It looks great. And she ran up to her room and I stopped and I thought, and I took a deep breath And I thought, oh gosh. And the thing is, if I had decided just to take the photos off of the wall and leave those little baby hangers throughout that hallway, what Grace would remember years later is my parents got divorced and my mom took all the photos of my dad and his family off the wall and left those little hangers. Instead, her reflection was, there's more photos of me in the hallway and it looks great. So 
it was just an interesting moment of they notice everything. And even though I thought that wall was wallpaper and she didn't ever notice it, even what was on it, she noticed it within seconds. Um, yeah. So, so that's why, so the concept of minimizing the gaps and thinking if you're taking down a piece of art, you might not put another piece of art up, you might put a mirror or you're, you're taking a chair out and you'd say, okay, rearrange the room a bit. So it doesn't feel like there's just that gap of that missing chair where dad's chair was or whatever the case is. So it is just being really conscious of them feeling like that everything is just completely being pulled apart physically because it is a representation of what's happening, you know, emotionally and within their, within their life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been absolutely incredible. So where can people find out more about you? Where can they get your book and follow you, see you, all Great. of that good stuff? Yes. So my website is... Um, www.gooddivorce.guide actually. And it has all the information about my book. My book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online. And it's also available in a paperback, an ebook, iBook, uh, Kindle and Nook. And also I went in the studio last year during the pandemic and actually um, did an audio version. So audible version as well, because I have found that you may not want this book on your bedside table or your coffee table if you're reflecting on things. And so I wanted it to be available um, for moms, depending on where they are and when they could consume the book. And so I think that's really important. I had a young woman that uh, I was uh, networking with that she stopped me before we started talking. She goes, I just want to tell you that I'm reading your book. And I said, oh, and it's always a very bittersweet thing for me to hear that because I need to hear someone's needing it, but then I'm hoping that it's helping them. She said, well, I go to my friend's house and I, and I had it delivered to her house and I sit in the car in her driveway and I read it. Ah, uh, love that. And, and we will definitely put links to all of it in the show notes as well so that it'll be easy for people to find it and grab it also. So thank you so much, Sarah. This has been absolutely incredible. And I know it will be so helpful for everyone. So thank you for sharing. Well, thank you for having me, Rebecca. Really appreciate it. It's it's a it's a tough time in life, but hopefully the book will help women that are going through through a divorce. Yeah, I know. I know that it will. Thank you. Thank you. And those are the ways that you can spot a covert narcissist. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Negotiate Your Best Life. I'm Rebecca Zung. Tune in next week for another edition of Negotiate Your Best Life. Remember, if you want more ways to slay and you want more ways to be supported, you can always join my membership at joinslay.com forward slash slay. You can always subscribe to my YouTube channel and you can always grab my free Crush My Negotiation prep worksheet at winmynegotiation.com. Remember that today is a great day to start negotiating your best life and I will definitely catch you in the next episode. Negotiate your best life. Thanks so much for listening.